When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The stock market is on fire so far this year, even as economic indicators remain on the shakier side. Exuberance on one hand, skepticism on the other. Where does this leave Canadians planning for the year ahead? I'm Emily Jackson, and you're listening to Down to Business. This week, we're joined by Francis Donald, Chief Economist and Head of Macroeconomic Strategy at Manulife Investment Management. Frances broke down her thinking behind the headlines when it comes to whether the Bank of Canada may tweak interest rates, how much debt consumers can keep carrying, and whether the new trade deal between the U.S. and China will eliminate some uncertainty for Canadian businesses. We spoke at the Post studio in Toronto. Francis, good morning. Thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I want to jump right in and start talking about the stock market versus what we're seeing from the overall economy. The stock market has been going pretty much gangbusters this year, yet this week you're getting some mixed forecasts. The International Monetary Fund forecasts some lukewarm global economic growth and slightly lowered their predictions from previous estimates. So the economy seems to be lagging this exuberance we're seeing in the stock market. Why do you think that's happening? 2019 was very much a year where the economy did not translate into the stock market. In 2019, we were in the midst of a a very pronounced global manufacturing recession. GDP numbers were falling across the entire world. We were in inventory destockings. China was slowing. Trade wars were ablaze. And yet the stock market was doing just fine. People were taking risk. The reason for that was that the call for 2019 was never really about GDP growth. It was about what central banks were going to do. Is there a so-called central bank put in the market? And what we discovered is that, yes, in 2019, in my view, it was the central banks who said, we're going to lower interest rates. And then on top of that told us, we're not going to raise interest rates for a very long time until we see sizable amounts of inflation. If you take risk, if you're an asset allocator, that tells you, wait, you could enjoy some better growth in 2020, even if it's not gangbusters, and you don't have to worry about higher interest rates, that's a fantastic environment for risk, and you have no choice but to take it. I will say, however, if you look under the surface of what's happening in risk markets, you will see signs that the market is not 100% convinced. We still see, for example, investment grade doing a little bit better than high yield. We still see signs that sort of defensive plays are outweighing some of the more pro-growth plays within the market under the surface. So my sense is that, yes, we are still living off of these central bank actions that will propel growth through the next year or two. But if you look under the surface, you look at the details, I'm not sure everybody is buying this idea that everything is okay in the world. I was going to ask you if investors are getting carried away, but I think it's an interesting point that even though they're investing in the stock market, taking that risk, they are playing it a little bit safer. They're focused maybe more on profitability than growth. It's very hard to look at stocks right now and not just see valuations screaming at you the entire time. They are very high across almost every measure. I have seen people say, you know, they're expensive, but they're properly valued based on what the Fed is doing. Kind of like, you know, a Porsche is expensive, but properly valued. I'm not so sure. Uh, My sense is that we are due for what I would call an interruption in the upward trend, something like 5 to 10%. But if you're a long-term investor, you should be used to those kinds of bumps in the road. If you're thinking more 
short term. Sure, you want to kind of pull back a little bit of risk in the near term. And we're starting to think about what could be these catalysts that create these interruptions. Is it that, yes, the market is too excited about growth and we get some disappointing growth numbers? Could it be that China disappoints us again? Maybe we hear some geopolitical risk headlines and they don't just have to be US-China. They could be US-Europe. They could be related to protests. They could be related to now we're hearing about you know health epidemics that are breaking out in Asia that we need to be monitoring as well. So there's a long list of reasons why we might see this medium to long-term upward trend in risk, but we need to be cognizant that you know it's probably not going to go in a straight line. Never quite the straight line. Which economic indicators are you specifically paying attention to when it comes to Canada? Whether it's Canada or the U.S. or most major economies, we are always predominantly focused on the consumer. And that's particularly true in Canada because in Canada, unlike the United States, the consumer is substantially more levered. Lots of debt here. Lot of debt, but not just the amount of debt. That, that's not typically what worries me in an economy. What worries me in an economy is the cost of carrying that debt. So Canadians pay just under $15 out of every $100 that they bring home towards the interest in principle on their debt. Now, when interest rates were rising, that number grew. So we had no choice. You know, if you used to pay $14, now you pay $50 and you have to pull that dollar from somewhere else. Maybe in the beginning, it's easy. You maybe don't take as many Ubers or you don't buy that new pair of shoes. But we know that there are some households that are more constricted. They've already pulled back on all of those more luxury items. And this is when we end up with people having to go to the bank for proposals to you know change the terms of their loans. And we see retail sales start to fall. So some things that we want to watch for the consumer is for First and foremost, we, we make it so complicated, but the underlying Econ 101 truth is that if people have a job, then they tend to do okay. And do they have a job where wages are rising and rising to compensate for the cost of living? What is the cost of living? Well, you know, we can look at our CPI basket, which is what the Bank of Canada will look at. I think a lot of people will feel that that doesn't represent the true cost of living for them, that childcare, that uh, housing, particularly in some regions of the economy, is not well captured. Particularly in Canada's biggest cities. I know, I mean, when you talk about cost of living, this is a tale of urban centers, your Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver versus some rural places where the cost of living is more affordable. It is. And then we have the converse problem, which is that we have segments of the economy like in Alberta, where you know, we focus on the national job growth, which did really well in 2019. But Alberta lost jobs. And we're so focused on the national average and claiming that this is everything is fine, that we don't pay attention to these massive regional disparities that are lying underneath the surface. So when you ask me, what are you looking at? I'm looking for a consumer that can maintain this weak but okay level of spending. And there are pockets in the country where I think that is still feasible. And there are other pockets where I get more concern. And that would largely be the energy patch. The energy patch certainly had a tough year in 2019. Things are looking a bit more stable in 2020, but still a lot of questions there for sure. When it comes to consumer debt, a recent survey, an MNP survey found that half of Canadians are worried they won't be able to cover their household expenses without going further into debt this year. And that, that's a pretty striking number to me. I'm wondering, how do these negative feelings, how do you compare them to that hot stock market that we're seeing on the other hand? It seems like there is this disconnect between what consumers 
consumers and what people are actually experiencing and what we're seeing in the big headline numbers. Well, in Canada in particular, our stock market, the TSX, is generally not a very good reflection of the Canadian economy. Even in the United States, the S&P, you know, it's almost half manufacturing earnings, half of the market cap in the S&P, almost half is manufacturing. Manufacturing is only 10% of the U.S. economy. In Canada, the TSX is largely banks and energy. So the way it trades is not typically a reflection of how Canadians feel on the day-to-day. And that's why you can be a fantastic Canadian economist, but not necessarily call the outlook for the TSX. We also need to monitor the Canadian dollar really closely, how that's faring. I think we're in a very comfortable range right now. But when we get a Canadian dollar that's too weak, that can weigh on consumers. And we discovered this quite a bit in the last few years. You might remember the cauliflower crisis where cauliflower prices rose through the roof. I remember it was like $7 or $8 for a head of cauliflower. And I would brought one up to the till before I said, oh, no, no, I don't actually want that. That was insane. Yeah, particularly in this environment where we're facing other rising costs. So we have to watch that really closely. Um, you know, we need to watch things like telecom bills and and the cost of energy within each individual province. These are part of the cost of living that has been, in some cases, painful for Canadians. And in my opinion, we probably need to focus a little bit more on how do we measure the weight of the cost of living on Canadians outside of the more simple CPI index? And how do we support them in ways that extend beyond tinkering with interest rates? Because most of the challenges that face Canadians you know, weakness in the energy patch or rising childcare costs are not truly related to 25 basis points moves in monetary policy. And I think the Bank of Canada has come to terms with that probably earlier than a lot of global central banks who have been trying to adjust monetary policy to solve the world's problems. But, you know, you can lower interest rates by 25 basis points. It doesn't solve a trade war between US and China. So where does that leave the Bank of Canada? You know, we we already have historically low interest rates. They've been low for a while for a lot of younger people. We're just used to this low interest rate economy. And you hear stories from people in the older generations talking about the 80s, 90s, when things kind of got crazy as the bank prepares to make some interest rates decisions going forward. What can they really do? How much do they have left to tinker? And where does that leave the importance of the bank to Canada's economic success? They have more room to tinker than most major central banks. They have a bit more room. But in 2019, the global, the the Canadian central bank did something miraculous. They essentially sent a message that said, We know that there's global manufacturing recession. We know that there's a lot of turbulence externally, but we choose not to react to this essentially noise in the economy. And they were looked at from the rest of the world, like how could you possibly stay on hold when the Federal Reserve is cutting interest rates, when the European Central Bank is panicked, when the BOJ and the People's Bank of China are all trying to ease policy. But their message finally filtered through into markets that they will be cutting interest rates if and only if the benefits outweigh the cost. And for Canada, the costs are very high from reducing interest rates again. Why are those costs so high? The Bank of Canada sent a message that it is finally seeing some evidence that financial imbalances in Canada are starting to improve a little bit, which is to say that the debt that Canadians are taking on, some of the housing market, some evidence of a bit of cooling. Now, in that environment, you don't want to then 
add more fuel to that fire and reignite a second wave in the housing bubble by cutting interest rates. There's no question the biggest risk in Canada is a housing bubble pop. That is our biggest concern. That would be number one on just about everyone's list. In fact, it's been number one since about 2012 when everybody from San Francisco to Paris was trying to short the Canadian dollar because there was too much debt in Canada. I always call that the widowmaker trade. It hasn't worked yet. Hasn't worked yet. And, you know, that housing bubble hasn't popped yet. We've been talking about it, as you said, for eight years now, and people just keep waiting. So will it ever actually happen, or is this just our new normal here? There's a couple factors that probably continue to provide some support to it. One is low interest rates. But again, you know, if we cut interest rates again, we're worsening our biggest problem. And that just stays on the consciousness of the Bank of Canada. Every time they look at the economy, they have to think, you know, we could provide a little bit of support right now, but what good does that do us? Consumers are already levered to the hilt. They've never had to pay more out of their take home towards interest and principal on their debt. Do they have an even willingness to take on more debt? And should we be encouraging people to be buying houses at this price level? Will lower interest rates help revive the energy patch? Probably not. Will they help solve global geopolitical tensions that have nothing to do with Canada but impact Canada? Probably not. So they have to make this decision. And it probably comes down to, do we start to see some sizable job losses? Does business confidence fall off a cliff? Do we see a substantial slowdown in business or consumer spending? And if we did, then you might see a Bank of Canada later in 2020 that says, you know, we need to provide some insurance to this economy. This is essentially the only tool the Bank of Canada has. And if we don't see, you know, a large amount of fiscal spending in 2020, then it's the only policy tool available to support the broad economy. Myself, my, my opinion and the opinion of most economists, and I believe the opinion of the Bank of Canada, though, is that interest rate cuts will become less and less effective over time at curing what ails us. What are those those big problems? I know in the recent months, the job growth has been quite good. There have been some positive signs when it comes to business investment and business confidence, all things that were nice to hear after 2019, where a lot of recession fears were front and center. So what do you see as those big problems? that do ALS? Well, number one is the most obvious one, right? Which is how much more juice can we get out of the consumer? How much more spending can we see out of the consumer? You'd have to see wages rise more substantially than they are. And if you raise wages, that means companies have to pay more. Number two, I would say, is just structurally lower energy prices and um, a recalibration of that industry. That's structural in nature. That's going to take us a long time to adjust to this new normal. And it's not something the Bank of Canada can truly help us with. Number three is the strength of the U.S. economy. You know, I always find it interesting that particularly when I speak with international economists, they say you must know a lot about China because you know Canada is a China play. Well, Canada is not a China play. Canada is based on oil and the U.S. economy. And China is still our second largest trading partner, but comparatively... Well, 80% of our trade goes to the United States. So, you know, there's an old expression, if the U.S. sneezes, then Canada catches a cold. So we are largely exposed to the fate of the U.S. economy. Our view is that the first quarter of 2020 will be the weakest quarter for the United States economy. Now, markets are never thinking about now. They're thinking about the future. So they've already priced in the idea, and they did it earlier in 2019, that Q1 would be pretty rough. And now they're kind of banking on the second half recovery in 2020. But if that Q1 weakness is, is more pronounced than we expect, then Canada will feel that a couple months later, particularly via the manufacturing cycle. I think it's hugely impressive that Canada's manufacturing sector has held up as well in the midst of this global manufacturing recession. We are seeing some beginning signs that the manufacturing recession is turning around, that the worst of it is over, but there are always risks. You know, there's this perception that economists have one outlook. You know, what's your call on the Bank of Canada? Or what's GDP going to be? But the truth is, behind the scene, most 
economists don't have one view. They have several scenarios and we probability weight them. So yeah, the biggest weighting right now is on a recovery in the second half of the year. The biggest weighting is that you know Canada does okay, but every economist on the street has a scenario where Canada is not okay and they've assigned some sort of weight to that. In my case, it's probably something like 20 to 30%. That's non-negligible. That's something we have to think really hard about. It's just not what's going to end up in the headlines because it's not the base case. Right. And I think it's it's interesting to think about that balance that we have to to do. It's, you know, it's not just one thing. It's a variety of scenarios. Okay, which is the most likely to happen? You spoke about our ties to the US, and that leads me to the last thing I want to talk about, which is trade. Obviously, Trade tensions seem to be in a better place right now than they have been in a while. The U.S. inked the first phase of its deal with China. NAFTA appears to be, the new NAFTA, forgive me, appears to be moving forward a bit. Canada spent much of the past year kind of caught between China and the U.S. as they fought this trade war. I'm wondering what the first phase of the deal means for Canada now that it seems to be providing a bit more certainty. Phase one of the China U.S. trade deal is pretty scarce on details. If you're doing business with China or the U.S. or you're embroiled in the supply chains that are affected by this negotiation, unless you are within a particular agricultural product, unless you're trading soybeans, you didn't get much clarity. The problem with the U.S.-China trade negotiations is really more long-term and structural in nature. It's the idea that you know, since the 1930s and the peak in the world average tariff rate, the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, we have had global trade getting cheaper and cheaper for almost a century. Now we're in an environment where it's not just U.S.-China, but within Europe, Europe and the United States, intra-Asia, there is a thirst for more protectionist policies. And we are seeing evidence that the world average tariff rate, which I think is the best example of globalization, will now start to rise again. People are starting to throw up those walls after you know years of relatively unfettered trade. Right. And this is a game changer. Anyone who took an Econ 101 class learned about the, the so-called textbook benefits of globalization and free trade. Now there's a school of thought that says maybe we've gone too far. Maybe we need to be more nationalistic in, in our trade policies. And it's short-term pain for long-term gain. What we need to see is a full resolution of US-China trade. And that's not going to happen before the next election, in my view. So we still have this structurally elevated level of uncertainty about what, you know, U.S. is going to say about intellectual property rights in China, about whether we're going to continue to see the tariffs that have been put on stay held on or whether they're going to be removed. If you're trying to do business in this environment, if you're thinking about switching your supply chain and, you know, there are surveys that show you know, 35% of businesses that do business with China have already switched their supply chain. These are sticky decisions. You don't change your supply chain from China to Vietnam and then hear about a phase one trade deal and unroll all those negotiations. It took us two years to get to this point. Probably not packing up the factory quite yet. Not right away. So we have experienced a, a what I call a paradigm shift when it comes to free trade and the concept of globalization. And the sooner markets recognize that this is not about one nice headline across our computer screens in the morning and about a shift in the way that we think about trade, protectionist policies, tariffs, the way we do business with each other, the sooner the better for markets. 
So again, where does that leave Canada? You know, we are a trading nation. We're more exposed to it just given our close proximity to the U.S., the fact that we rely on them for 80% of our export markets. Where does this leave us in this new world of protectionism? We do have some certainty from the new United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, but this paradigm shift can't be a great news story for us as a whole as we move forward this year. I don't think it is. And the the prescription I would write for the Canadian economy, and I think it's pretty well recognized, is we got to diversify. We can't just diversify our trade partners. That takes a long time. You know, we're not going to go from 80% of our trade with the U.S. down to 50%. That would result in a huge change in the way that we eat, live, things we buy, consume, the way we, we dress. We also need to work on diversifying our sectors of importance. So focus on technology on productivity improvements, on the massive boon that we've seen in services in Canada. This has to be the Canadian economy of the future, one that becomes a destination for exports that are unlike anywhere else you can get in the world, to capitalize on the incredible human capital that we have in in Canada, the fantastic universities, our ability to produce new forms of research and development. To me, that is the future of the Canadian economy. Is it going to happen in 2020? Probably not, but we can sow seeds that lead to you know, a more successful economy of the future. And if we focus on those policies, my sense is that Canada will be hugely successful. Francis, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was Francis Donald, Chief Economist and Head of Macroeconomic Strategy at Manulife Investment Management. Thank you so much for listening to Down to Business and thank you to the Down to Business team. Music and production by Bryce Hall and editing by Yadula Hussain. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. We really appreciate it. I'm Emily Jackson, and until next week, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com.